Just a, I'll give you a, a brief rundown for where we where we went yesterday. Um, if you weren't able to make us make it um, at the end of the conference, uh, we were looking at uh, really the focus is on First Peter chapter three and uh, looking at the idea of grace in the home. And in order to understand what Peter is going to be saying to the husbands and the wives. In this passage, we needed to look at the context of the letter. And all over the letter, you see this idea of suffering. Chapter 1, Peter is trying to focus the minds of these groups of believers on um, the hope of their salvation. They needed to have their minds fixed on uh, that future tense salvation that we look forward to as believers in Christ when uh, this, this, we'll, we'll get the, the final package of our salvation. Um, when we uh, when we're with Christ, and then in chapter two he begins uh, to talk to these believers who are dealing with things in a Gentile communities with uh, new governments, uh, within uh, new roles, some of them as as servants, and all this is the result of having to flee from their homelands because of persecution for their faith in Christ, and. So he's setting the stage about the proper way to deal with um, with this uh, this stress, these pressures that had come upon their lives um, because of having to flee uh, from persecution. And the verse that we really kind of tried to harp on yesterday was in First Peter chapter two, verse twenty, and had the opportunity to talk to Chris a little bit about it last night as as eyelids were drooping and uh, everybody was was pretty tapped out. And uh, and Peter kind of summarizes what he was saying to these believers in chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Um, and so he uses, this, he uses the word charis here when he says that it's acceptable with God. He's saying this is grace with God, and this is grace uh, alongside of God. Um, from God's perspective, the way God looks at it, uh, grace, living by grace, is responding with a Christ-like attitude when we're suffering for doing the right thing. It's not throwing up our hands in our air saying, This isn't fair! This stinks! I did the right thing and now I'm suffering for it. No, he gives the example of Christ as he went through his passion and where he did not respond inappropriately at one point to the unfair and unrighteous treatment that he was receiving. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? Well, he committed himself. He continually committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So here is Christ going through the passion, knowing that uh, his suffering had been planned out by the Father from eternity past, knowing that this is the will of God the Father, and instead of retaliating, instead of giving back what was due to this unfair treatment, he said, Father, it's in your hands. Father, I'm trusting you. Father, you're going to make all things right. And he's submitting himself to the Father's will. 
And as a result of Christ's suffering, with that type of attitude, you and I have the opportunity today to be enjoying the benefits of grace. He suffered like that unrighteously so that you and I, not only that our sins might be forgiven, but that we might be made alive to God. And that we have a God that cares for our souls. And that's what, that is the buildup here to chapter three, uh, when Paul, be, excuse me, Peter begins addressing the wives and the husbands. We looked at very briefly, we looked at marriage, how it was intended, and it was, um, at creation. God said it was a part of his creation that was very good. But we do need to be honest with ourselves and recognize that sin, when sin entered into the world, that threw a monkey wrench into the works. Because now you have two individuals with sin natures. And even though as believers, we have been, um, our relationship to the sin nature has been uh, defeated, right? It's still there, pumping out those appetites that really are con- contrary to um, the type of marriage that God desires. And so you have these two sinners entering into this marriage union now that apart from the supernatural enablement that the Spirit can provide us, we're going to have that trouble that Paul promised the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. He said there is going to be pressing down. There's going to be this pressure. There are going to be burdens associated with the marriage relationship. Uh, that word where he says that uh, we're on, I guess, page 4, uh, at the bottom of page 4, that word trouble you see there is translated in the uh, King James, also translated tribulation, affliction, anguish, and persecution. Uh, so this is not a, you know, Chris talked about some fun words and some fun passages. This is not a fun word, right? This this word flips us. Uh, it's, it's a word that uh, is dealing with anguish. It's used with uh, childbirth. Uh, Paul talks about the anguish and the affliction of his heart when writing this letter to the Corinthians because of their carnality. Uh, he was torn up on the inside seeing these believers, many um, that he had the opportunity to minister to and um, some that had been uh, led to Christ through his ministry. And he has this affliction and anguish of heart. Um, the early church, they had to flee Judea because of this word, this pressure, this pressing down, this persecution. And he's saying that is going to be a part of marriage. But what we're going to see here is this is not to be a depressing note on, on marriage, right? This is, I'm not trying to be down or Dan here, right? Because there is hope. There's hope in Christ. And it can be, as Kevin has talked to me about, it can be a, a little slice of heaven. But when we're doing it the way God intends for it to be done. And so the, the, the main uh, monkey wrench that gets thrown into the work is our carnality, really, right? The pressures of life come just like these believers are facing pressures associated with the relocation. And when these circumstances come in our lives, many times we focus on those circumstances, don't we? Uh, the, the medical bills that we're wondering, how, how in the world can we pay for them? Uh, or the stressors of your job or... Um, yeah, any number of stressors, right? And instead of focusing on our salvation and who we are in Christ and the benefits that we have, right? And focusing on those by, uh, by faith, we get, we get absorbed in these circumstances. And what happens when we get absorbed in these things? Well, uh, carnality ensues. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, uh, we see that a mindset fixed on the flesh will result even in believers being carnal. And this carnality is not just in the workplace. This carnality can extend into our marriage relationship. Let's go ahead and look at Romans um, 8. Paul writes here, he says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Uh, the word mind is... You won't be surprised, many of you here are probably familiar with the word phreneo, right? The framing of the mind. So when, when we are, our, our mental focus is on uh, the things that are being driven by our flesh, then we're going to end up carnal. Um, we are going to end up living in that manner. But they that are after the Spirit, those that are minding the things of the Spirit, right? Um, then, then we're going to be spiritual. And we're going to be able to have the types of relationships uh, with, with our spouses and with our, uh, with our church family, uh, with our coworkers that God desires for us. And so we also see that this flesh, the flesh that we can, we can focus our mind on, we can, we can get um, unsettled in our mind, uh, the flesh is producing appetites that are contrary to God's desires for marriage. Uh, we can just see that because we, we know what the works of the flesh are. Galatians 5.18, But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. I mean, how many of you would say that, you know, this is, these works are the foundation for marriage, Right? You are not going to have a rock-solid marriage if, if these types of works are, are prevalent in our lives. And, but that's what the sin nature is producing an appetite for. And so we got to recognize here that uh, because of the fact that now, after the fall, we're bringing our sin natures into this relationship that God originally intended for it to be between a husband and wife without that being, being there. So the only way that we as believers can find the type of satisfaction in marriage that God intends is if we allow ourselves to be filled by the Spirit. Um, Chris talked about that supernatural empowerment that only the Holy Spirit can provide uh, the believer. And why is that necessary? Because remember, marriage is still a good thing. Remember, I'm not trying to be down or Dan. But we have to be realistic. We've got to take off those rose-colored glasses and realize I'm toting around a sin, sin nature in, in this relationship. And so is my spouse. And that is what is going to make things difficult unless we are allowing the Spirit of God to fill us. We see that instruction in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, when Paul talks to these believers um, and he tells them, before he gets into any, any instructions here in Ephesians 5, right? He says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Allow yourselves to be filled by the Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, the Spirit fills us, um, produces the attitudes in which we are lacking when it comes to the character of Christ. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, uh, the whole package, right? 
But we need the Spirit to fill us with those attitudes because in our flesh, we don't have them. We can't love like Christ loved apart from the enablement that the Spirit can provide. But it's not until after He gives that instruction to the believer to allow the Spirit to to fill you, then He begins instructing the wives and the husbands here in chapter 5, verses 22. So we're exhorted to allow the Spirit to fill us. Um, I forget who it was who brought us to these passages in Colossians chapter 3 yesterday. I apologize, but um, focusing who you are in Christ. Focus on your identity. Focus on your position. um, Focus on uh, what God has provided us in our salvation. Uh, as Peter talked about in Second uh, Peter chapter one, right, uh, that we are sharers in the divine nature. We have the potential as believers in Christ, as part of our salvation, to be able to enjoy sharing in a quality of the divine character, right, uh, where God can work in and through us to manifest His character traits in our lives. Um, so going back to what Peter was, was talking about here, we see, um, the persecution and personal upheaval experienced by the letter's audience, uh, really likely resulted in some marital discord. And that's why he's having to address these things. Now you think about, you know, why do we address our children with about certain behaviors, right? Well, it's because they need that instruction, right? You don't tell Johnny not to, um, stick their finger in the electrical socket unless they're going, you know, going ready to plug it in, right? You know, they, they lick their finger and they're ready. Oh, this looks cool. I mean, well, no, don't do that, right? So Paul's giving some, inst- or excuse me, Peter's giving some instruction here to these individuals uh, that that needed some help in this area. And so he first instructs uh, the wives in chapter three, and he says, "Likewise, you wives, in the same manner in which." Christ submitted to the Father's will for his life, even if it meant at times suffering. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Uh, this word, uh, hupotasso, I see the definition there. This word was a Greek military term meaning to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. So I'm not here to tell you today that uh, the husband-wife relationship ought to be, you know, the wife saluting the husband as if he was Patton or maybe in my, you know, maybe for me it would be more like Napoleon uh, with my height. It, that, that's not what he's talking about here. But we do see the idea of a role. We do see the idea of, remember, God had established that role as a result of the curse. And I believe it's so that we recognize how badly we need God. And But the, the other way that this word is used in this non-military fashion, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, and assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. I believe this is how Peter would be using that when it talks about the, uh, the relationship between the wife and the husband. Uh, this word is used when it refers to Jesus in his humanity where he submitted or subjected himself to his parental authority, Joseph and Mary. God of the universe, in his human nature, submitted himself to two fallen individuals. 
Uh, we also see in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. So when you and I are carnal, we don't want any part on God's principle for life. Right? We, we want to do our own thing. Um, we see also in Romans 13.1, we see how this word is used when, when Paul is uh, telling believers that we need to submit ourselves to the government of the land in which we live. So it's, it's this idea of, uh, of remaining under, understanding our place, uh, understanding our role as God has determined. But it's a willing thing. Uh, it was, this was brought up uh, yesterday about the counseling session, right? Right? You must submit. No, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, Kevin brought out in Ephesians chapter 5 here, when, when the wife is called on to submit to the husband, it's in the middle voice. And the middle voice has the idea of doing something for your own self. This is something, we're going to see that this is an act of faith. Just like Jesus continuously committed himself to him that judges righteously. What God has established for for ladies in the marriage relationship is to willingly choose to recognize that God this is this is what you have for me in this relationship. And it's interesting because we see in Ephesians 5 he says as unto the Lord. Um us guys we make a lot of boneheaded decisions. Um I don't know. If, I remember watching the show called The Wonder Years uh, growing up. And uh, there was, the husband would always come home and the wife was pretty cheery. And she, you know, hey, how's work? And he would always say, work's work. And he would just like walk through and just sit in front of the TV, right? And, um, you know, sometimes we're, we're cranky. You know, I, Steve gives me a hard time. I didn't do any slides. But when we were doing, I was kind of teaching this a little bit. And I had Archie Bunker up there, you know, for the husband. Sometimes, you know, that's as husbands, that's who we are. And the reason I bring this up is because we're going to drop the ball. And, and it's interesting because Paul, when Paul says, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we, because many times we're going to drop the ball as husbands. Many times we're going to find ourselves being carnal. And so wives, to do it because you thought he was going to be Sir Lancelot, or, or your soulmate, you're going to be, we're going to deeply disappoint you. But if you recognize it's something that your heavenly father who has saved you and he loves you and he has a plan for your lives, if that is your attitude, that's your mentality, that is the only way that this is possible. What Peter and Paul um, have, uh, have communicated is what God desires. Yeah, but if only he would, you know, not leave his dirty socks hanging from the ceiling fan, right? If only he would not put his toothbrush, you know, he just leaves it in, you know, wherever, the trash can, and he picks it up and starts brushing. You know, if only, no, but then she, then Peter goes on to say that, that if any obey not the word. And so he's even talking about when husbands, and I believe he's, he's talking potential for an unsaved husband or or a believing husband who can be being um, maybe a little obtuse, a little resistant to God working in their lives. He says, even that husband, 
God's, God's desire for the wife is to submit themselves to that role. Now, it's important that we understand, I have to bring up that caveat, that this idea of role and the husband's headship in the marriage does not mean that they are more valuable, that they are more important. Because we're going to see in Christ, husband and wives, man, male and female, right, that we all have the same standing. We are all in Christ. Breastplate of righteousness. Steve was covering that yesterday, right? In Christ is my righteousness. And we're going to see that that can be a difficulty sometimes because of our role that we as males may think that, well, you know, I'm the head of the house, right? And, and But in Christ, we need to see ourselves together, right, Andrew? Right? We were talking about this idea of focusing, seeing ourselves together um, in Christ. And so what we see here is this idea, he says, even if those obey not the word, uh, this is in a first-class condition. So Peter is assuming that this was true in some cases. And this word has the idea of refusing to be persuaded. Uh, in Acts, we have a number of examples of uh, unbelieving Jews that were refusing to be persuaded by the gospel. So much so that they caused persecution in many of the cities that Paul went into. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18, we have examples of uh, the Jews in the wilderness who were not allowed to have an entrance into the promised land. Why? Because they refused to allow to believe the promise that God had made them, that it was possible for them, that he was going to bring them in. And so some of the wives that Peter was addressing likely had husbands that were being antagonistic to the word. Now, if we reach out to the world system for this kind of situation, right? You know, ladies, you're going to call your girlfriend, you're going to tell, you know, what your husband's doing, and are like, oh, girl, you shouldn't have to put up with that. Oh, girl, you need to put him in your place, his place, right? That's what the world system tells us. And yet God is saying, continuously commit yourself to the one that judges righteously. Um, I had an opportunity to share some uh, personal accounts of, of what I was able to observe. Uh, my stepmom got saved at the eight when I was 10 years old. And my dad was, uh, I would say, a non-religious Catholic. Right? He worked hard. He worked six days a week on Sunday. Uh, he didn't want to have anything to do with church. And my stepmom comes home, and she was, she was full of zeal for the Lord. I remember her telling me after I got saved, she's like, Danny, if the rapture happens, you know, I'm going to be gone, and you're still going to be here. I'm like, okay, great, thanks. I want to get saved, right? I mean, she was like, she was bold. Um, but over time, she, rec she began to, to recognize that... Um, that God was going to be the one who had to do the work in our lives. And I saw my dad as being resistant to the word. He didn't want to have anything to do with church and the gospel and anything. Then I began seeing her living out the Christian life and uh, understanding what it meant to be spiritual, not just at work, but in the home. And nine years later, after she got saved, my dad came and trusted Christ as his Savior. And it wasn't because of what she was telling him. It was, wasn't these verbal convincing arguments. It was her living out a spirit-filled life in front of her husband. And that's what he's saying here. Um, and it was hard. It, it was hard for her. It, he hurt her soul at times as an unbeliever, uh, blind to the truth, you know, enslaved by his sin nature. 
but she had to continuously commit herself to the one that judges righteously, saying, Father, I know this is what you want. This is hard. This is painful. Really, it was an act of faith. It was trusting in the promises of God and trusting that he would work things out. And he says that they that this these husbands, even the ones that are being disobedient to the word, they also may be won without the word by the conversation of their, their wives. This uh, has the idea of apart from any kind of word, apart from a quality of a word. So he's, he's instructing these wives. Remember, we talked about yesterday, Peter's a big godder. Peter, impetuous Peter, right? Think about who this is coming from. Think about your Gospels. Um, Kevin was talking about teaching us about the proper interpretation of the Gospels yesterday. And who was the first person that always had something out of his mouth? Peter. Boom. If something had to be said, he was going to say it. It didn't matter whether it made sense or it was accurate or not. He was just going to say it. And now Peter's gotten to the point where he's like, ladies, don't follow my example. You know, uh, believers... Don't go out into the world and try to convince everybody with, with your verbal arguments. Live a spirit-filled life. Allow, allow the Holy Spirit to convince these individuals. So he's telling the wives, even apart from a word, it can be your routine conduct of life, that conversation. He's not talking about our chit-chat. He's talking about the way we live our lives on a daily basis, the way how we're known, what we're known for. Um. But that just doesn't jive with our DNA, does it? I mean, we, we've got to put people straight, you know? Uh, you know, people try to tell me that the Dallas Cowboys are better than the Eagles, man. I'm like, come on, let me, let me, t- let me go through the Eagles roster for you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you. I'm going to convince you, right? Many times, you know, we won't just sit back and be like, okay, well, we'll just let the teams duke it out. Well, you know, we'll, no, we, we want to convince people. We want to change their minds, there's that temptation, right? We think we have too much control. And God's saying, no, this is how I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to accomplish this work. And I want you to trust me. Just like the son trusted me to accomplish my will on the cross. And so, so, so many times, uh, we don't give the Christian life its due we fail to see the powerful impact of a, of, a, of a spirit-filled life. But once again, we see this as a recurring theme in Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, even when the Gentiles are speaking evil of believers, he said they may behold your good works. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 15, by, uh, by doing well in, in every area of our lives, we have the ability to put to silence ignorant, false narratives about the Christian faith. Uh, 2.22, we saw when Christ was reviled, he reviled not. When he was abused, he didn't threaten. He allowed God to work, the, the Father to work out his will. And he says that, wives, when you trust the Father in this area, in your relationship, even if your husband is, is carnal, even if your husband is, is not being led, he said, that they have the potential to witness as a spectator your good conversation. Just as engrossed as they may be, you know, in the final seconds of 
you know, the, the basketball championship on the couch and, and they're locked in and they're watching this or they're watching a replay of something. He said, your husbands have the potential to behold as a spectator your spirit-filled life. And it is through that beholding, it is through that spectating that um, there is the potential that they can be one. Whether that would be uh, present, or excuse me, um, initial salvation, or whether that is, uh, he's referring also to the idea of uh, just being brought into a right relationship with God. He says that, that that has the real potential to occur. He says the husbands will be observing your chaste conversation. That set apart, right? Uh, that chaste conversation, chaste has the, is, is derived from this word hegias, where we get our word holy from, uh, which really has a uh, primary meaning of being set apart, set apart unto God. So once again, we go back to the idea of the wife choosing to do this because she's saying, God, you have a will for my life. Father, you're good. Father, thank you for saving me by your grace. I understand what you have in my life, and, and I'm setting apart my life unto you. And he's saying it's being done with fear. This is not, once again, this is not the wife cowering in fear over this domineering, you know, husband with a club where she's, she's just, oh, I've got to do what you say. I believe in this, this um, instance, he's talking about this reverence for God, for his wisdom, for, um, for his plan that he has established. It's a reverence for God being good. And so once again, we, we're reminded of Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Do this for your own benefit. Um, do it because you recognize that God's will is always what is best. We've been going through a series on our, uh, on our Wednesday nights at our church on the will of God. And one of the things that continuously comes back about God's desirous will is that that is always what is best for us. Many of you talked to and you were convinced that God was leading you to a certain city or leading you to a particular seminary or leading you into a particular job and making these hard decisions and it didn't make sense. People couldn't understand how this could be um, the right choice. And yet every time where we follow God's desirous will for our lives, it is always the best thing even if it means that there's suffering involved. And so he says here um, that wives, do this for your own good. Do this for, for yourself, for your own benefit. And i got to be honest with you. Uh, I have to commiserate with you, know, with you ladies. Uh, maybe some of you have had, uh, in your formative years, you had a bad example. It makes it difficult for you to say, how could this be good? How could this idea of, of submitting, how could, how could this idea of, especially when my, my husband's carnal or, or maybe sometimes we buy into the world system and, and its philosophies, but he's saying, trust me. Trust my will. Trust my plan. Because my plan is always what is best. And what we're going to see is, once again, this is a demonstration of grace in the home. Right? Living out God's desirous will, even when the 
your spouse doesn't deserve it. Doing what is good, doing what is inherently good for the other, even when they're not reciprocating, even when they're not doing what God has called them to do. Right? It would have been a lot easier for Jesus Christ to suffer on the cross if we were if there was something inherently lovable about us. But as Kevin likes to say, we were reminded yesterday, I ain't no good, you ain't no good, ain't none of us any good, right? There was nothing lovable about us, right? He did it because he is love. And so he says here, he says, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning or the plating of the hair and the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So ladies, he is not saying, don't get dolled up. He's not saying, come here to church, you know, wear a brown paper bag over your head. He's not saying that. Um, but what he is focusing is that the way... The way we draw, the thing that ought to be what is drawing attention, the, the thing that ought to be um, the focus is this attitude of our inner quality. The inner quality. Uh, this, the inner man, excuse me, the, the hidden man of the heart. Uh, we live in a culture that is obsessed with the outward appearance. Um, and yet God, we know throughout Scripture that God is focused on the heart. God is focused on who we are on the inside, our motivations, our attitudes. And he's saying this ought to be our main focus. This ought to be the thing that draws others to us. Not the outward, but the inward, the attitude. He talks about the hidden man of the heart, uh, this new reality for the believer in Christ, Right? Um, we see in Romans 7 that the inner man takes pleasure in the law of God. Uh, we, we, saw, uh, in, we see in Ephesians and Colossians, we talk about the new man, who we all are together in Christ. And so I would take it here, this idea, the hidden man of the heart is, uh, has to do with that new reality because of who we are in Christ. I remember when I was first saved, my, uh, sometimes I would struggle with uh, doing things to... Uh, fit in or be what I thought I was supposed to be. And my stepmom would always say, Danny, just be who you are in the Lord, right? Just be yourself in the Lord. Be who God created you to be in Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Let that be our calling card. So this this calling card of this, this inner attitude, uh, this inner uh, quality of an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, so we see the wife's focus ought to be on her inner beauty resulting from who she is in Christ rather than on the brand of clothing that she's wearing or the jewelry, right? Let it be the, the inner qualities that draw others to us. Go to the hairdresser, get your nails done, you know, buy a pair of new, new pair of shoes, yes. But that's not the most important thing. And he says... Uh, that the, the spirit ought to be one of meekness, this gentleness of spirit. Um, in the definition there, it says it stems from a trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. Once again, that attitude of Christ on the cross, right? Continuously committing himself to him that judges 
righteously. This big lug is not doing what he's supposed to do in our marriage relationship. But Father, I'm going to trust in you. When he's failing, when he's dropping the ball, when he's not who he's supposed to be in Christ, I am going to trust you and I'm going to pursue your will for my life in this relationship. And so we see Peter stating that God values the inner attitudes and life of the woman instead um, while she is trusting God to influence even disobedient husbands by living a spirit-filled life. And he says, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. These, these Jewish believers would have been familiar from the Old Testament with Abraham. And it doesn't take a whole lot of searching to find out that Abraham dropped the ball a number of times in his role as husband, right? And Sarah here is commended for her response to her husband in these situations when he said, yeah, just, just go tell those guys that, you know, you're my sister and, you know, they'll take you and, you know, they'll take care of you, right? They'll, these guys wanted to take Sarah, his wife, and make them, make her their wives. What, you know, what a, what a scared cat, right? This guy, and yet it says that Sarah subjected herself to Abraham. But it's interesting, she doesn't say he did it because he was this fantastic example of a husband. What did she do? It says that she trusted in the Lord, who trusted in God. Her faith was in God's plan for her life. Her faith wasn't always in her husband. And so he commends, even in, in the Old Testament, someone, an individual, a wife who was not indwelt by the Spirit of God, had the ability still to put her faith in God, how he would work these things out. So here's the question, and I've got I've to move, right? Because 10 o'clock is... Psh, and I got to get to the husbands, right? Wives, I mean, you're like, hurry up. Let's get to the husbands here, right? Um, so I, I don't want to give us, you know, shirk that one. But let, let's just look at a couple questions here. Is it possible when a husband is unpersuaded by the word that he could be making choices that are frightening to the wife? Maybe we have a track record of, of some bad decisions. Maybe, uh, maybe we're struggling with some carnality and, and we make some decisions that the wife is like, how is this going to work out? Right? What temptation exists for a wife if she imagines frightening events brought about by her husband's carnality? The temptation there, humanly speaking, is I've got to set this guy straight. I've got, I've got to convince him. I've got to make this guy. He's got to know, Right? And what is Peter saying? Live out the Christian life. And even apart from any kind of quality of word, you live a spirit-filled life. Trust me to change your husband's heart. He's saying here in that last part, he said, the wife can be free from fearing events and circumstances that are frightening by not trusting necessarily in her husband, but in the, the person and the faithfulness of God. This is a walk of faith. Haven't we been called to that? Trusting in God and His promises to us as believers in Christ, 
This is this can be scary. But he's talking about living by grace in the home. Right? Um, at times, suffering. Allowing your heart to be hurt for doing God's desirous will with a Christ-like attitude. And you may be saying to me today, Dan, it would be so much easier for me to fill this role the way God has set it up, you know, if my husband was loving me like Christ loved the church. And I would say, yes, it would. It would be a whole lot easier if your husband was sacrificially loving you the way God has called us husbands to do that for our wives. But that wouldn't be grace. Living by grace in the home means providing a good without whether anyone deserves it or not. And God has called wives at times to suffer for doing what is well. Living by grace in the home. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we, if we like Christ, will commit ourselves, continuously commit ourselves to the one that judges righteously. Then he gives some instructions to the husbands here, and he, and he calls on the husbands to respond to um, difficulties brought on in this marriage relationship with their wives with the mind of Christ. Verse 7. Now, ladies, we only got verse 7 for the guys. I didn't write this. All right, Peter wrote this. So, uh, but in verse 7, he says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Uh, this verse here uh, has been particularly uh, challenging to me um, because when I came to understand that this word dwell, um, I believe, Chris, you brought out the, the prefix, the soon prefix, uh, earlier in, in his, um, his lessons. And that has the idea of this intimate togetherness. Right? Sometimes you see, uh, you know, dwell with them according to knowledge. All right, you guys live in the same house. You're dwelling together, right? No. Uh, this is a word. It's a soon oikeo. An intimate togetherness within the home. I was telling somebody, uh, Courtney, about my, my daughter. Uh, she's a reader. And she is just, she'll just go in her room and she will read. And she will just be like, uh, just completely oblivious to what is going on. And when I was growing up, many times I would just kind of escape in books or uh, sports and, and these various things. And um, sometimes that, that's been a challenge, the idea in marriage to intimately together with that God is talking about here. But when I saw that little prefix, that's amazing how powerful God's word is. How, how a little three-letter prefix can just blow your mind. And I'm like, whoa. We're not to be like these two ships passing in the night or these two satellites that are just revolving around each other and we're doing stuff. This is an intimate togetherness with our wives. Now remember, guys, our sin natures operate at times a little bit differently than our wives, right? Uh, when, when marital pressures come up, right, many times we want to I've seen really two kind of tracks that we can take. We can kind of do the just man cave, you know, man cave it, and we can kind of just 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 go off into isolation. 
And it may not be necessarily physical isolation. It may be emotional isolation where we just raise this, you know, this barrier. And we're just like, I got to get out of here, right? I got to tune this out. Or it could go the opposite direction where it's this domineering, um, you know, well, I've got to, I've got to beat this down. Um, and neither of those are really are this idea of uh, this soon oiketo, this dwelling together with them according to knowledge. Uh, this word knowledge is the word gnosko. Um, many of you are familiar with this idea of this experiential knowledge. Uh, I like how Vincent uh, defines this. It is a knowledge of an object which implies the influence of that object upon the knower. Um, it's interesting in G, uh, what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11 through 15, that he is the good shepherd and he knows his sheep. Husbands, we've been called to love our wives sacrificially like Christ has loved the church. And an aspect of that, of that love is an experiential knowledge. It is knowing what sets our wives off. It is knowing uh, their insecurities. It is knowing their fears. It is knowing their greatest hopes and dreams and being intimately acquainted with those and being considerate of those. And I think there's an aspect of our sin nature in our flesh, guys, where, you know, the emotional side of things, right? I mean, we can, we can cut the grass and we can pay the bills and, you know, but you want to start getting emotional? Whoa, hey, whoa, you know, I, I don't know about that whole emotional connection thing, right? And God is saying, guys, it's going to take that supernatural empowerment for you to be able to dwell intimately together with your wife according to an experiential knowledge. That's not the right page. Um, I find it interesting in John chapter 14, verse 9, uh, in the upper room, Jesus begins telling the disciples that he's going to go away and he's going to be telling, um, he said, Philip spent close to three years with Christ and yet he still didn't have an experiential knowledge of him. Jesus said, I've been with you all this time and you still don't know me experientially yet? So we can be in a marriage for years and still not know our wives experientially like Peter is calling on. And he says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Uh, we know there's a human tendency to look down upon those things that are considered weak. Uh, we know our world system does not uh, value the weak things in this world, right? Um, and yet, Peter is saying, Honor the wives as unto the weaker vessel. Esteem of value, place honor upon them. And when this idea of, of honoring a, a wife in this weakness, think of the idea of a Ming vase. Incredibly valuable, but you're not going to play, you know, you're not going to play football in the backyard with it because that thing's going to shatter. But this weakness that he's talking about here does not diminish the wife's value or worth in God's eyes. Remember, role does not establish value. Think about it this way. Uh, Christ came 
God the Son came to earth to do the Father's bidding and His will. We saw that Christ submitted Himself to the Father's will. Courtney, I believe you're going to talk about the harmony of God, right? The Trinity, Trinity might be in there a little bit, right? Was Christ less valuable as God the Son than God the Father because He submitted Himself to the Father's will? I think we would say no way. And so you have two persons of the Godhead, same value, and yet he chose to submit himself to the Father's desirous will. So this idea of, of the husband having the role of, of, of headship within, uh, within the family does not mean that the husband is superior or more valuable in God's eyes. It's just how God has set it up to work. So he exhorts uh, these husbands to value and esteem wives. Do not look down upon uh, the wives uh, as some, someone who is inferior, but rather as being heirs together of the grace of life. That our wives are co-recipients, co-heirs of the grace of life. That they share equally in the same provisions of grace that we do. That there is not a pecking order where, where the husband is more valuable or has received more of an inheritance than the wife has. Uh, but that they are, we are co-heirs together. Uh, Satan loves to drop these little thought bombs into our minds, guys. Uh, where, where we may see ourselves more important than we do. Or when we really are. Um, and his desire is to get us to start looking down upon one another. Uh, Andrew and I were talking about the difficulty of, 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 of seeing all of, the, all of us together as being in Christ together. We tend to grade ourselves, well, I'm more spiritual than that person because they do this and they don't do that and this, but that person, no, there's no gradation in, in God's eyes when it comes to that, who we are in Christ. And so, See a number of verses there about dealing with this idea of seeing ourselves together as, as husbands and wives being in Christ together, co-heirs of the grace of life. And this would have been pretty revolutionary in this culture, both Jewish and Greco-Roman. Uh, you see some historical references to the fact that this was, um, that wives definitely were, were kind of secondary seen as being secondary individuals in these cultures. And yet he's saying, no, husbands, you need to see each other as co-heirs. Not only are we heirs together in receiving our salvation, but all, here's what, um, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, and I don't have that in the notes here. But an aspect, and, and Chris and I were talking about this last night, an aspect of our inheritance with Christ is that we are going to suffer with Christ. That is part of the package of our inheritance. Right? Some some of you may have received an inheritance from a loved one and you got some cool things and then you got, you know, Aunt Roberta's like ugly Christmas sweater. You're like, I don't I don't like that part of the inheritance. Right? This is part of the inheritance that you and I have been called to at our salvation is to suffer the way Christ suffered. And at times, that suffering is going to take place within the marriage. And we can do it graciously with the attitude of Christ. 
And he says here, husbands, that our prayers have the potential to be hindered if we do not uh, respond and have the right attitude of, about our wives in the marriage relationship. It says your prayers that your worship be not hindered. Our communication with God has potential to be hindered, to be cut off this opportunity because we have the wrong attitude about our wives. And if you spend any time in the New Testament, you see this idea of prayer and the importance of worship in our relationship with God. It is what provides us with the peace of God, right? Philippians 4, everything by, don't, don't be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, our worship with God ought to be foremost in our communication with Him. It is one of the means by which we can enjoy the peace of God. And he's saying we have the potential for that to be diminished and cut off. Let me wrap up. Let's go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. I don't want to, I apologize, um, guys that are, that are going to be speaking. Um, Peter concludes his letter to these believers, and he says, But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The grace of God means we confer, we do good to one another, what is inherently good, whether that individual deserves it or not. And at times, that's going to bring suffering, hurt to our souls. We're able to do that because we recognize we've been called to it. We've been enabled to do it by the provisions of grace. And we trust God. God, this is part of your plan for my life. And I can trust you that this is your will and that this is what you have for me. Not easy. And that's because it takes living by faith. And it takes being a spiritual believer to do that.